Our Old Testament reading today is going to come from Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16, verses 15 through 22. Then he, that is Aaron, shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness." For our New Testament text and our uh, exhortation text this morning will be from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Thus saith the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you this morning that we may come together and hear from it, that we may be uh, affected by it. Lord, we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts and that he would work mightily to uh, tune our affections towards the Son, that we would walk away loving Jesus all the more this morning, and that we would have a greater love and, and trust in what he has done for us. We thank you that he is indeed our great high priest, far better than Aaron could ever be, far better than Aaron could ever hope for, and indeed he is even Aaron's high priest. Lord, we thank you for his work on our behalf and for his ministry that continues even to this day. Lord, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in all these things. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Well, in the adult Sunday school class, we just finished off a series on uh, assurance of salvation. And and there was one comment that the teacher, uh, Dr. Joel Beakey, kept making in that course. He kept saying, when you are questioning your assurance of salvation, flee to the promises of God. Flee to what God has said in his word. Flee to his promises. And, and I pray that this morning that, that we would see and, and, and 
appreciate even more one of the chiefest of the promises of God, namely that Christ himself is our high priest, that he stands even this moment making intercession to the Father for us, for you, for me, that he is in some manner praying to the Father, bringing our petitions and his own petitions on our behalf to God the Father. Now, to many, the idea of having a priest is, is kind of a, a strange Catholic thing, isn't it? We're, we're Protestants. We're Presbyterian. You can't get more Protestant than being a Presbyterian. And you're talking about priests. Well, if you read through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we should not be surprised when in question 23 it asks, what offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? And the answer is, Christ is our Redeemer, executeth the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. And I confess, one of my favorite questions and answers of the Shorter Catechism is indeed number 25. I love 24, 25, and 26. But the question 25 asks, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? And the answer is this, Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. I love that last part, making continual intercession for us. It's not a once and done sort of thing. It's not a one-time prayer or a one-time intercession. It is a continual intercession for us as we go through each moment of our lives. You can already tell this should bring great comfort, to, shouldn't it? In those times of suffering, in those times of loneliness, in those times of sorrow, that you have an advocate before the throne of God the Father himself who is making intercession for you in particular. He cherishes you, dear brother. He delights in you, dear sister. And he brings your needs and your cares before his Father continually. This morning we're going to be looking at a passage that opens up in greater detail the ministry of our priest, our, our great high priest. And my hope and prayer this morning is that you walk away with a greater assurance that if this one, this priest, is ministering on your behalf, before the Father, then there is nothing that you need fear in this life. There is nothing that you need be uh, tripped up or, or find difficult if this one is on your side. You may be steadfast holding to your confession. You may be confident in boldly approaching the Father. You may rest assured on the promises of God with this one guaranteeing them. So this morning, as we walk through this passage, we're going to see three ministries of our great high priest for us. And these should give us assurance. Three ministries of our great high priest for us. And just as a side note before we get into it, so this may annoy some of you, but I believe that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. So if you disagree, there's a potluck afterwards and we can talk at length about it. Uh, but I'm going to be using the Apostle Paul says here. So uh, if you think it's Apollos, feel free to insert that as, as your conscience leads you. Uh, but the first ministry is that he ascended to make intercession for us. He ascended to make intercession for us. And we see this in verse 14. The author here says in verse 14, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He says here, since then. This is a transition into the topic of the high 
priestly ministry that that has been hinted at so far in this book. It's been suggested that he's a priest, but here he explicitly says that this is our great high priest. We have this one. Literally having, therefore, a great high priest. And, and, And the apostle here is emphatic. He is saying, we have this one. He is ours. Not in some sort of possessive way, but he has given himself to us, and therefore we have him. And and once again, it's in a present and active sort of way, giving it the sense that we always have this great high priest. There's never going to be a time when you do not have this great high priest. There never will be was a time in the past where you did not have this great high priest. There is not a moment in the present where you do not have this great high priest. We have this great high priest. Now, I've said this title many times so far, great high priest, and it might surprise you to note that this is the only time in Scripture Christ is the only person who is called the great high priest. Now, Paul uses it several times in the book of Hebrews, so this is not the only instance, but he is the only person in all of Scripture to be called the great high priest. Now, there were many high priests in the Old Testament, Number, a huge number of high priests are found in the pages of Scripture. Of course, Aaron was the first high priest, and then descendants of Aaron were high priests after him, or at least they were supposed to be. We have other names such as Eli as the high priest and Zadok the high priest, but there's only one who is called the great high priest. And this begs the question why is he so great? Why is he greater than Aaron? Why is he greater than any high priest who has come before him? And the apostle tells us in this passage, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. This is not a mere high priest who has passed through a curtain, as we read about on the Day of Atonement. This is not a mere high priest who enters into an earthly tabernacle, but this is the very great high priest who has passed through the heavens themselves. You see, on the Day of Atonement, it was a very dangerous day for the high priest. And at least tradition tells us that uh, what they would do is the high priest would enter into this room but one day per year. And it was to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifices upon the Ark of the Covenant, upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And tradition tells us that it was such a dangerous task that they actually would tie a rope and bells on the garments of the high priest. And if they heard the bells stop jingling and there was silence for a certain period of time, then they would pull on the rope that was tied around his ankle to get the dead body out of the Holy of Holies. Now, whether that actually be true and what they did or not, uh, we don't quite know. It's tradition, nowhere found in scripture. But the point stands, this was a dangerous day for the high priests. This was a day where if you did not get it perfectly right, you would no longer live. This was a day when the high priest would enter into the very presence of God in the most holy of places. And after much cleansing and ritual ceremonies and sacrifices, he could enter the holy place. But if he got something wrong, heaven forbid. But we have a high priest who is far greater and far better than Aaron. A high priest who has not just entered through a curtain, a very thick curtain, by the way. We have a high priest who does not need any bells or rope around his ankle. We have a high priest who has entered into the most holy place, the heavenly holy place, before the very throne of the Father himself. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. 
And what Paul is referring to here is the ascension. After the resurrection, Jesus departed earth and passed through the heavens into heaven. He, he ascended from the earth into heaven. And it's very interesting. I had a pastor one time make a comment. In his, he was doing research on the ascension. And, and there are tons of books written about the resurrection of Christ. There are tons of books written about the earthly ministry of Christ. But comparatively few written about the ascension of Christ into heaven. It's a very understudied topic, and we are prone to jump over it because in in some ways it's a bit transitionary that we know that he's now in heaven, and that's the most important part. He was on earth, that's important, and and, and he just jumps up into heaven somehow, and and we don't pay as much attention to it. But, But here, the author of Hebrews draws much attention to it. He says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He has ascended into heaven. And this begs the question, what if he did not ascend into heaven? What if Christ were still here on earth? Well, we know that he himself said it was better for him to depart to the Father than to stay here on earth. We would not have an intercessor in heaven at the Father's right hand. He would be limited to only one place and one time. Uh, He would not be here. He would be here and not the Holy Spirit. In short, our lives as Christians would actually be impoverished if Christ did not ascend into heaven. They would be deficient. They would not be complete. The true and better Aaron passed through not curtains made with hands, but heavens made with his own voice. Think about his location for a moment. He is at the right hand of the Father. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 tells us, and and he said that to Stephen, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Paul in Ephesians, when he speaks of God's great power, says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And of course, we have Hebrews 8.1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And Jesus himself in the Gospels in Luke chapter 22 uh, says this, but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, you see a little bit of diversity in these verses. Some say that he's standing at the right hand. Others say that he's seated at the right hand. And if you notice in Hebrews, they make a point of saying that he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Why is this important? Well, first off, imagine a priest in the tabernacle or in the temple sitting down on the job. That would never happen, right? The the, the priest would be constantly busy. Why? Because his work is never done. A seated priest assumes that he has made enough atonement. A, A seated priest assumes that he needs not offer any more sacrifices or or needs not lead any more people in purification ceremonies. But this great high priest has sat down on the job because his work is complete. This high priest is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing there? Romans 8.34 tells us this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, I mean, you may ask, what does this term interceding mean? And how does this ascension actually benefit us? Well, I'm glad you asked that. The Heidelberg Catechism actually asked that question as well. Question 49 asks this, How does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? 
First, he is our advocate in heaven, the catechism says, in the presence of his Father. He's our advocate. He is the one who advocates for us, the one who joins his voice on our behalf. He is the one who speaks to the Father the words that we need to speak to the Father, but may not even know we need to speak to the Father. He is the one who advocates for us. Second, Heidelberg says, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ our head will also take us, his members, up to himself. I remember reading a a Puritan, and I forget who it was, probably Watson or Sibbs or, uh, or I'm totally spacing on Sibbs' disciple, but one of those Puritans, uh, he made the comment that our flesh is in heaven in the form, if you will, of Christ who is like a down payment or deposit saying that we will go to heaven to be with him. And likewise, his spirit is dwelling within us as a down payment, as a deposit, as it were, that we will have the whole fullness of deity given in part in, in fellowship with, with the divine, divine nature. We have these two deposits between heaven and earth that are given to assure us that our salvation is sure and that we need not fear. Christ himself, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ our head will take us, his members, up to himself. And thirdly, he sends his spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge. By the spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is seated at his right hand. Let this sink deeply into your heart. Jesus is seated at the right hand of his Father, interceding for you. The larger catechism, sorry, I've got all these catechisms. I'm new to the Reformed uh, faith, and I'm excited about the catechisms because they're so helpful. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 55, asks this, How doth Christ make intercession? And the answer is Christ makes intercession by his appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven in the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring his will to have it applied to all believers, answering all accusations against them, and procuring for them quiet of conscience, notwithstanding daily failings, access to the boldness, with boldness to the throne of grace and acceptance of their persons and services. This should warm our hearts, ought it not, brothers and sisters? One stands for us. In those moments when we feel helpless, in those moments when we feel weighed down by the weight of sin and misery, there is one who stands by the Father, and he guarantees our place with him one day. And he advocates for us, making intercession. Verse 14 again, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Note the expanded name for this great high priest. Jesus refers to his human name given to him at birth, the name given by Mary and by Joseph. But he is also the Son of God, a divine name given in eternity past. Jesus saves. Jesus means God saves. Son is the one who is like his Father in every way. Jesus, we find compassion, and in the Son, we find power to accomplish his will. This is the full package. This is not someone who wishes he could do good, but cannot. And this is not someone who wishes not to do good, but can. This is one who wishes to do good for us and who does do good for us. The application of this is let us hold fast our confession. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
In light of the ascension, there is hope for those persecuted ones. And here it may be helpful to take a moment to look at the, the recipients of the letter authored to, uh, to the Hebrews. The, the people who received this letter, who, who read it. And, and, and scholars believe, and through reading through the pages, it would seem that these were people who had a Hebrew or Jewish ethnic background who then were becoming persecuted for their faith in Christ. These were people who, who believed the gospel, who, who clung to the gospel, and their family didn't like that too much. These were people who were starting to become persecuted by their family members, by their community, by their society, by, by the synagogue. They were kicked out of the synagogue. In fact, they had uh, people taking possessions from them. They were being robbed. They were being beaten even. And they had the thought, maybe if we just stop talking about Jesus for just a little bit, not, not, not totally going away from Jesus, not apostatizing, but, but we're just going to cool it on the whole Jesus stuff. Sorry for the American anachronism. And the Apostle Paul wrote the letter of Hebrews to say, if you even set him aside for a little bit, there is no coming back. If you go back to the old system, if you go back to the ceremonial laws, if you go back to the synagogue system, if you go back to the old covenant administration, there is no hope for you. So hold fast to what you have. Because Jesus is so much better. Because he offers a better administration of this covenant. Because he is so much better. He's a better high priest. And to go back to the lesser is to trample underfoot the very blood of your Savior. And it is in this light that the author tells these people to hold fast to their confession. There's hope for us as well. By the way, there's a beautiful implication here that the wavering faith can be normal, but Jesus does not waver. His faith never wavers. He trusted the Father completely, and he will not waver in his dedication and in his mission and in his purpose for us. What is this confession, by the way? What is this confession that these uh, recipients, these readers, were supposed to hold to, and, and, by, and us by extension? Well, it is the confession that Christ died for the sins of his people. It is the confession that Christ rose again on the third day, having made propitiation and atonement for his people. It is the trust in Christ's work as being complete and done and finished for us. It is the hope for heaven. It is the confidence in what Christ has done for us. That is our confession, and it is in that that we must hold fast. Note he doesn't say hold fast to extra spiritual disciplines. He doesn't say go uh, do this and do that. He merely says look to Jesus. Look to Christ. He is the author and perfecter of your faith. Look to him and hold fast. So the first ministry that Christ has given to us and continues to do is that he ascended into heaven to make intercession for us. Secondly, he persevered to sympathize with us. And this is what really struck me about this passage more than anything else, perhaps. Verse 15, he persevered to sympathize with us. Verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, there's a double negative here. We do not have one who is unable. And simply put, we do have one who is able to sympathize 
Now, perhaps some people questioned this at the time. Could Jesus really know what it's like? Could Jesus really care about what I'm going through right now? After all, he's God, is he not? He's the creator, and I'm but a speck of dust. I am the creature. How could he even care about what I am going through? He has no idea what the temptations are in this world one might offer. He has no idea what it's like to be assaulted by pornography, immorality, anger, bitterness, laziness, selfishness. He, he doesn't know what it's like. How could he? Now, this question, to question the, the sympathies of the high priest, is actually more astute at the time when this was written. Some of us who are a little bit more theologically uh, minded would say, of course, Jesus knows what it's like. But in these times, for these original readers of this letter, they were dealing with a wicked and corrupt priesthood. They were dealing with a, people, a, a religious establishment that, that hated them. We go all the way back to uh, Aaron and his sons who, who sinned in the very tabernacle by offering strange fire. We have Eli and his wicked sons such that there was nearly a rebellion in the land of Israel because they were afraid that Eli's sons would become the high priests. And of course, God judged the nation. But all of this pales in comparison to what happened during the intertestamental period. This is the space of time between your Old and New Testaments, uh, called the intertestamental period. But it was about 400 years of darkness. It It was a time when the word of the Lord was no longer being given by prophets until John the Baptist came about. And it was a time of chaos and darkness and and difficulty. We, we saw, if you study this time, there was a, a group of men led by Judas Maccabee who, who revolted against the Greeks. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes set up a picture of Zeus in the temple and offered a pig on the altar. As you can imagine, that got people angry. Rightfully so. And, and the Maccabees revolted against this Greek rule and said, we will restore what God wants, a, the manner in which God wishes for us to worship him. Unfortunately, in, in the revolt, they overstepped and started moving from mere kings to actually becoming priests and ministers of God's grace as well, or ministers in the temple. And corruption set in, and they rot set into the priesthood. It came to a peak during this time when there was a man whose name, now listen to his name, Alexander Janaeus was the high priest in the temple of God. Alexander Janaeus. What other famous person do you know in history from this time named Alexander? Alexander the Great, of course, the arch villain of Judaism at the time. This man who had a Greek name became the high priest in the temple. And he hated the people. He hated the people that he was supposed to represent and the people he was supposed to minister to. He bought the office and he caused a civil war leading to 50,000 Jews being slaughtered. And he crucified, get this, the high priest crucified 900 Pharisees to punish them during this time. You see, it wasn't just rational, it was actually correct and right to question the sympathies of a high priest during this time. And of course, we come to the New Testament era and nothing has changed. Have you ever noticed in John chapter 11, verse 49, John uses a little bit of irony there when he says, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, 
said to them, you know nothing at all? Isn't the high priesthood supposed to be a lifetime appointment? But Caiaphas was high priest that year, implying that there would be a different one next year, or there was a different one the year prior. The high priesthood was bought and sold on a whim, sold to the highest bidder. But Jesus is nothing like these wicked men. Verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. This is one who, who sympathizes with us, literally to suffer alongside of or to suffer with us. He, he sympathizes with us. He literally enters into the suffering with the sufferer and walks with them through the experience. That's kind of the, the idea of this term sympathy and sympathize. It means that Jesus experientially knows what it's like to be one of us. In his humanity, he walked and lived a normal, regular life, just like you and me, except without sin, of course. He's not the king or scholar locked away in an ivory tower. He knows what it's like because he experienced it. This is not head knowledge, but life experience. Not intellectual, but experiential. He knows what our weaknesses are like. In his incarnation, he, the God of the universe took on human flesh and lived a normal life just like you and just like me. Consider this. Though he spoke the universe into existence, he had to struggle to lift the timbers for the houses that he and his father built. Though he created the languages at Babel, he still had to learn Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew by babbling like a little baby. Though he designed metabolic pathways and digestion, he experienced hunger and thirst. He lived life like a normal human being. We see this in Isaiah 53. He was sick. He got cuts and bruises. He was tired. He, he was mentally drained at times. He experienced physical weakness. And he had to trust his father through all of these things. We have one who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. You see, more than just the physical weakness, he was spiritually weak at certain points. We see in his temptation in the wilderness for 40 days that he was legitimately and truly tempted to give in to sin. Now, of course, we know that being God, he could never have sinned, and yet in his humanity, he was truly tempted as we are. And yet he never, ever sinned. He never gave in. Satan, the father of lies, the tempter, the accuser, his, his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. This very one came to the Son of God in the wilderness and tempted him. He tempted him with bread, the lust of the flesh. He tempted him with honor, the lust of the eyes. And he tempted him with idolatry itself, the pride of life. He was bombarded with everything outside of himself. Everything that the accuser, everything that the adversary could bring, he brought against the Son of God in temptation. And yet, he was without sin. There was a very insightful commentator on this passage, and he noted that when we experience temptation, the temptation usually grows, and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And we as fallen humans, we've got two options. One, we can uh, run away and, and, and by God's grace be delivered from that temptation. We can use the Joseph method and just get away from it. Or as the temptation and as the pain grows, we give in to it. We concede to the temptation and we, we sin. Those are our two ways of dealing with temptation. And yet the Son of God himself, Jesus, did not give in 
And he experienced that increasing pain and increasing torment and increasing turmoil of that temptation. And yet he never gave in. This should bring comfort and hope to us that even when we are under the greatest and most difficult of temptations and trials, Christ experienced something greater than we will ever experience. And he knows exactly what it's like going through what we are going through. But he never took the out. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted with coveting. He was tempted with dishonoring his parents. He was tempted with bearing false witness, with murder, with sexual immorality. Nothing was accepted. He was tempted with every kind of temptation. Now, note well, this does not mean that he was tempted in every single individual instance of temptation. Obviously, he was never tempted with internet pornography. But he was tempted with every type of temptation. He was tempted with sexual immorality, just as we are, just through different means and methods. And yet, he was without sin. This, too, should give us comfort in these midst of difficulties and trials and tribulations that he knows what it's like. Our great high priest sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, and he knows how difficult temptations can be. And yet, he still stands before the Father, making intercession for us. Thirdly, and lastly from our passage, he draws us to the Father in verse 16. He draws us to the Father. Verse 16 reads, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In light of his ascension and experience, now we have confidence. Let us draw near. This is, again, in the present tense, and it it implies a continuous, repeated action. We are to draw near, not once, not several times, but constantly draw near. And this is more than merely prayer. I I promise you it includes prayer, but it, it involves all of us being drawn to the throne of grace. And he says, draw near with confidence. This is with boldness, holding nothing back. This is going to the throne of grace through prayer. This is drawing near to the Son of God through our daily fellowship and communion with him and with each other by extension. And we are to do this with boldness, holding nothing back, because he knows what it's already like. You see, God has made us right, and he hearkens us to come. And how could we not come to him? When he petitions us, when he calls us to come to him, how could we refuse the very command of the king? Too many guilt us into praying, but Christ himself asks us to come. It is now our nature to come. We ought to hold nothing back. We ought to not be afraid. We ought to not fear God's punishment or retribution for coming near to him. I guarantee you, Aaron feared entering into that holiest of holies. But we ought not to, because the Son himself calls us. Note well that this is a throne of grace. This is a throne defined by grace. It's defined by the giving of good things to those who do not deserve it. It's a kind throne. It's a throne that is willing and able and desires to do good for those who come and draw near in the name of Christ. What do we find at this throne? We find mercy and grace. One person defined mercy as the withholding of something that is deserved, or pity. If you are given mercy, you deserve something, but it's not given to you. Grace is the giving of what is not deserved. 
We give presents as a gift of grace at Christmas time. We give gifts to people as an expression of the grace that we have been given. And these all are perfectly fitting in the moment. This mercy and this grace is given at the fitting time. May we put to death the damnable lie that the throne is anything but a place of grace and mercy for God's people. Too many have put fear and doubt in our minds when it comes to approaching the Father. He is indeed the judge of the world. And for those who are outside of Christ, he is indeed a fearful and frightening judge. But to us who have been adopted as his sons and his daughters, for us who have been born into his family through the miracle of regeneration, it is a place of grace and mercy for us. God is well pleased with his children because of Jesus' work for us. Not because of anything you have done, not because of anything I have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. He is our high priest and he loves us. Richard Sibbs made this comment, Christ will make up for us, make up in us all the breaches which sin and Satan have made. He binds up the brokenhearted. Listen to this analogy. As a mother is tenderest to the most diseased and weakest child, so does Christ most mercifully incline to the weakest. All of you parents know that exact feeling when your child is sick. And, and, and you don't hate the child, do you? But you hate that sickness. You loathe that disease that is ravaging their bodies, and you hate that virus more than you could ever dream of hating a microscopic particle. I guess viruses are smaller than microscopic bacteria. But your heart goes out to that child all the more. Your your affections for that child, your pity for that child goes out all the more. And if you who are sinful know how to pity your child, how much more so our Father in heaven when he sees his children who are sick with the disease of sin. Richard Sibbs continues, Likewise, he puts an instinct into the weakest things to rely upon something stronger than themselves for support. The vine stays itself on the elm, and the weakest creatures often have the strongest shelters. The consciousness of the church's weakness makes her willing to lean on her beloved and to hide herself under his wing. And oh, brothers and sisters, it is a kind and powerful wing to hide under. In conclusion, there was a uh, novel written by a Swedish Lutheran, and uh, it's called The Hammer of God. It's a a delightful book. But in here, there's a a picture of a man on his deathbed. He's dying. And, And all the sins of his past, all the trials that he has gone through, all the missed opportunities come flooding upon his conscience. And he calls the, uh, the, the newly ordained uh, minister at the church. And, and, and the minister, in, in such an uncharacteristic way, tries to comfort him by, by the fact that he was such a good churchman. That, that he gave so much. That, that he was such a kind person. And that there's no one who would say anything bad about him. But the man's constant reply is, yes, but I could have done more. I could have given more. I could have prayed more. I could have read more. I could have ministered to people. I could have preached the gospel more. I could have, I could have always done more. And uniquely enough, the, the, the pastor in the story actually has to run out of the room because he's hyperventilating so much because he cannot comfort this man on his deathbed. But the man's sister comes in 
And here we read from the hammer of God. This is the dying man, Katrina. Katrina, it was good of you to come. You are kind, Katrina, and God will reward you. But me, me, he will punish. So will he be exalted and declared righteous in all his judgments. But it's going to go badly for me, Katrina. Katrina, why is it not as it used to be? There was so much light and warmth in the past. Then my heart was glad in the Lord, but it never became clean. Katrina, I am a sinner. I am a great sinner. And Katrina's words to her dying brother, Yes, that you are, Johannes, but Jesus is still a greater Savior. May we have assurance and confidence in the fact that though our sins abound, Christ's grace and mercy abound still more. Let us pray.